Tonight's sermon is from the archives of Dr. Stephen Olford. It was preached during his distinguished ministry at Calvary Baptist Church in New York City. This is part 21 in our series from 2 Corinthians, The Call to Church Action. Today's title, The Ethics of Stewardship, and our text is 2 Corinthians 8, verses 10 through 15. Now, here is Dr. Stephen Olford. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. For Jesus Christ's sake, amen. Will you turn with me to 2 Corinthians, chapter 8, second epistle of Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 8, and this morning we'll give our attention to verses 10 through 15. Our theme throughout this epistle has been God's call to church action. And for the first seven chapters, we have had a wonderful experience in the ministry of fellowship. God teaching us the various aspects of Christian fellowship. Then, as you know, the epistle takes a different mood and message and confronts us with Christian stewardship, chapters 8 and 9. Then chapters 10 through to the end, 13, we're going to discuss the subject of Christian leadership. But now we're right in the center of this epistle, and last week we were thinking of the example of stewardship. Ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that though he were rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. And Paul there confronts us with the example of stewardship as seen from the divine standpoint. And alongside of that, the human example of stewardship. The churches of Macedonia who gave out of their deep poverty. But Paul goes deeper into his subject now and deals with what we're calling here the ethics of stewardship. Having warmed our hearts by the sacrificial spontaneity of that wonderful giving, not only of our Savior but of the Macedonian churches, he now turns to this matter of the ethics of giving. Paul is well aware, as we all are, if we've read our Bible at all, that there is no other area of life that's more possible of corruption and mishandling than that of money and of finance. Writing to Timothy, Paul says, but they that desire to be rich fall into a temptation and a snare and many foolish and hurtful lusts, such as drown men in destruction and perdition, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, while the gaining of money can be a curse to the Christian, so can the giving of money. Hence the need to understand what the Bible has to say about the ethics of stewardship. The laws that determine stewardship to the glory of God. And I know no passage in the Word of God which treats these ethics so comprehensively and helpfully as the verses we had read to us this morning. So will you open your New Testament then to chapter 8 and verse 10, and we'll start right there. First thing I want you to notice is what I'm calling the ethic of integrity in giving. The ethic of integrity in giving. Herein I give my advice, says Paul, for this is expedient for you, who have begun before not only to do, but also to be forward a year ago. Now therefore... Perform the doing of it, that as there was a readiness to will, so there may be a performance also 
of that which ye have. With consummate tact, the apostle proffers his advice to a church that had failed to keep a promise, failed to observe a timetable in their ministry of stewardship. Such behavior had manifestly endangered the ethic of integrity in giving. And so Paul faces them with it. He doesn't dodge the issue. He doesn't rationalize it away. He doesn't gloss it over and said, well, now just go on praying and believing. He deals with a failure in this matter of the ethic of integrity in giving. What a word this is for us today. How easy it is to be dishonest in matters financial. Not only to err in dishonesty, but in delay. And so to mar and hinder blessing. It's an amazing thing, but wherever you dip into the word of God on this subject, God links together two tremendous truths, that of our giving and that of his blessing. As we give, so he blesses. In the words of our Savior, quoted to the Ephesian elders on the departure of the Apostle Paul, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And if we want this blessing, this supreme, beatitude in our lives, then we've got to know integrity in this ethic of giving. Now let's come to it a little more specifically. Paul teaches us that the ethic of integrity in giving demands two things. Notice verse 10 and then 11. Honesty in keeping our trust with God. Just note that, underscore it. Honesty in keeping our trust with God. It is expedient for you who have begun before now to perform the doing of it, he says. Paul was virtually saying that it was morally imperative for their performance to catch up and match up with the vows that they had made previously. It appears that the Corinthian church was one of the first to hear of the need of the mother church in Jerusalem. And there was great need there to be sure. Persecution had dispossessed many of the believers of their homes and of their belongings. Famine had stricken the city and it affected, of course, the believers as well. And with this deep need, Paul has a great burden and he doesn't keep it to himself. He shares it with the churches throughout Macedonia. And the church at Corinth was the first church to offer help. And that was 12 months ago. But the churches at Macedonia out of their deep poverty and affliction, had given over and abundance. And Paul's embarrassed now. Paul's embarrassed. Paul says, you at Corinth offered first, and because of your forwardness, and because of your zeal, and because of your desire to help, I used you as an example to the Macedonian churches. Now they have emerged and they've given, and you haven't. You've broken your pledge. You failed to keep your vow. Yes, Paul had used their enthusiastic promise of financial assistance to challenge the churches at Macedonia. He could say in verse 9 and 2, Your zeal hath provoked many. Your zeal hath provoked many. But contrary to expectation, the Corinthians had failed while the Macedonians had excelled themselves in the liberality and generosity of their giving out of deep poverty. In other words, the Corinthians had not kept their trust with God. Now, beloved, it is a very solemn and serious thing to make a vow and then to break it. When two people stand 
quietly in the presence of God for a wedding service. And the minister in the ceremony asks each to make a vow to each other and before God. The pronouncement from heaven is this, whom God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. It's a marriage vow. It can't be broken. And we could illustrate other vows. And here is a vow in giving. And God says, when you make a vow, be careful to keep it. Think of those words in Ecclesiastes 5, 4 through 6. When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better it is that thou shouldst not vow than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. Wherefore should God be angry at that voice and destroy the work of thy hands? So we see that God expects us to make pledges and to keep them. A pledge is a trust with God and we must believe God to fulfill it. So many people say that they're afraid to commit themselves in giving lest they should fail God. That's an understandable and justifiable attitude of mind, but I want to answer that. Surely, it's not only a lack of faith, but a lack of discipline and careful planning, and indeed common sense. We trust God for other things. We trust God for our salvation. We trust God in faith that we might walk a holy and a happy and harmonious life. We trust God for the fullness of the Holy Spirit. We trust God to enable us to witness effectively to those who are out of Christ. We trust God for so many other things. Why don't we trust him? Why don't we trust him to enable us to keep our vows? As someone has pointed out, we live our lives on the principle of pledging every day. Every day. When we turn on our lights, it's on the basis of a pledge to pay the electricity bill at the end of the month. We use every utility we have on the basis of a pledge, and yet in God's work we say we dare not risk a pledge. We do not credit God with the wisdom and understanding to make allowances for sicknesses and circumstances over which we have no control. We think of him only as an unbending creditor who will hold us to pledges that we cannot keep. This kind of attitude reveals a low level of faith and a poor view of God. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to teach us the ethic of integrity in giving. I've made a vow to my God. I cannot go back. I must keep my vow. It's solemn, it's binding, but it's blessed. My heart was greatly encouraged some time ago when this honesty in giving affected an unknown donor within the fellowship of our own church. Whoever it was put an envelope in the collection plate with only one word upon it, just one word, all in capitals, restitution. In that envelope were six $100 bills. This was honesty in keeping a trust with God. May God similarly speak to all our hearts. You've made a vow. You cannot break it. But the ethic of integrity in giving not only demands the keeping of our trust with God, but will you notice in verse 10, the keeping of our time with God. Honesty in keeping our time with God. And herein I give my advice, for this is expedient for you, who have begun before not only to do, but also to be forward 
a year ago. Paul tells us here that the Corinthians had pledged their offering for Jerusalem no less than 12 months previously. Quite obviously, something had occurred to delay their fulfillment of the pledge. And a study of the epistle, as we've been seeing all along these weeks, leaves us in no doubt as to why there had been a delay. They'd been preoccupied. And you ask, with what? I'll tell you. If you've been following along, I only remind you. Those of you who've joined us today, we've been discussing this epistle for many months. And these Corinthians had been preoccupied over matters which they should have settled at the cross immediately and forgotten. There'd been sin in the church, division in the church, lawsuiting in the church. And Paul had to write to them about this and deal with these matters. But they were still vying with one another and with the apostle. And saddest of all with their Lord. And Paul says, this is why you're not keeping your vows. This is why you're not fulfilling the honest pledge you made to God. You've been involved in quarreling and in sin and in backsliding. You should have dealt with this at the cross in repentance and faith and forgotten it and gone on with your job. They were a year late. They hadn't, their, they hadn't kept their pledge with God. kept their time with God. How true this is in the lives of Christians and churches generally. We pledge ourselves, our substance, our service to God only to defer our good intentions and to break our promises because of carnal preoccupations. Turning to the book of Ecclesiastes again, I read these words, To everything there is a season, and a time to every purpose under heaven. To everything there is a season, and a time to every purpose under heaven. And Paul the Apostle adds, The time is short, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And again, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Ephesians 5.16 has it ever occurred to you that a gift loses its maximum value if it is out of timing with the plan of God? I want to repeat that. Has it ever occurred to you that a gift loses its maximum moral value if it's out of keeping with the plan of God in terms of timing? To delay until tomorrow what God expects you to do today is to rob your act of giving of its moral significance. This brings up the whole question of whether or not we should leave our giving until we've departed this life. That's a very burning issue. Should I leave it until I've departed this life? Someone has said, those who defer their gifts to their deathbed virtually say to God, I will now give you something that I can keep no longer. Thank you very much. Happy, therefore, is the man who is his own executor. In this connection, have you ever stopped to think of the uncounted millions of dollars in the hands of Christian men and women who have withheld their giving to Christian service until death releases these vast resources? A study of the New Testament definitely questions the wisdom and rightness of this kind of stewardship. That is not to say that we're to be irresponsible to matters of daily commitments. For instance, the scripture says, Owe no man anything. Therefore, we're to be honest in our business commitments and we're to pay our bills and we're to maintain a life within our income. And if we cannot live within our income, then we're to cut our program to make it possible to live within our income. Nor does it mean 
that we're not to lay up for our dependents. For once again, the word of God declares, if any man provide not for his own and especially those of his own household, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. But having taken these matters into consideration, it is very doubtful whether we shall be rewarded fully, and I repeat that, rewarded fully for what happens after we pass off the scene. When the apostle speaks of the recompense and recognition to be given at the judgment seat of Christ, he specifically states that when we stand for review before the judgment seat of Christ, we shall be judged for the things done in the body, whether they be good or bad. In the body, whether they be good or bad. This means, of course, for actions taken while we're still living and functioning in the body. So it is questionable whether or not we get our full reward for what we do when we're out of the body. So you see that the ethic of integrity is not only a matter of honesty in keeping our trust with God, but also honesty in keeping our time with God. These Corinthians were a year late in fulfilling their pledge. A year late. And Paul solemnly warns them. Paul solemnly warns them of the negligence and of its penalties. But let's move on to another aspect of this. Verse 12. Think with me not only of the ethic of integrity in giving, but secondly of the ethic of ability in giving. Ability in giving. For if there first be a willing mind, it is accepted according to that a man hath, and not according to that he hath not. Now this is important, and follow me closely here. The sense of this text leads us to believe that God holds all men and women responsible for their measure of ability to give, or to put it in another form, the test of generosity or faithfulness in our stewardship is not our wealth, not the amount we give, but the willingness with which we give what we have to give. It isn't the largeness of the gift, it's the willingness of the giver. To hand over to the Lord that which he has. God doesn't ask you for what you haven't got. He asks you for what you have. If he asks you for what you haven't got, then he asks you in that sense to apply faith. To say, Lord, this is what I want to give you in the willingness of my heart. And I believe you to supply that so that I can give you it and show you the willingness of my heart. But it's willingness, ability to give. This is why Paul emphasizes in verse 12, if there first be a willing mind, it is accepted to that which a man hath, and not according to that which he hath not. Dr. Roy Lauren puts it perfectly when he says, and I quote, if you give a dollar and someone else gives $100, the smallness of your gift would not be measured by the largeness of the other person's gift. The measurement would be according to what you have and the willingness with which you give what you have, end of quote. Now to analyze this principle a little more closely, let us consider it as follows. There are two things about this ability in giving, this ethic of ability. One is the intent of ability, and the other is the extent of ability. Look at them together. First, there is the intent, for if there first be a willing mind, this matter of intent cannot be understated. There are many people who merely give to maintain their reputation. Some people give to silence their conscience. 
But what pleases God is the spontaneous intention of a willing mind. The person who finds himself hilariously giving to God. That's why the Hebrew writer puts it, to do good and to communicate, forget not, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. And when somebody comes and says, I want to do it, Lord, because I know it pleases you. Lord, I want to do it because it honors you. I want to do it because it glorifies you. And there is nothing more blessed than to give. And I long for this blessing and I long for this hilarity in my life. And so, Lord, I give it to you. That's my intent. And as one of our officers was mentioning in our church meeting just recently, it's perfectly true. You never find a sad giver in the real sense of that term. All true givers are hilarious. And God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. And I want to tell you that is a special love which God confers on a cheerful giver. God loves the whole world. Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Individually we can say the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. But there is a special sense in which God loves a cheerful giver. God alone knows how impoverished, how beggarly our lives are, how stinted of that wonderful love because we do not give. It is clear then that the intention to give is already in the heart. The amount is of secondary importance. What constitutes the sacrifice which pleases the heart of God is the willingness of mind to give in response to the greatest gift of all, namely the gift of God's dear Son. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift is the doxology with which Paul concludes this classic passage on giving. Now this aspect of truth is beautifully portrayed in the story of David and his desire to build the temple. You know how he loved his God despite his failures, Despite his sins, he had a deep love for God and he's known throughout the scriptures as a man after God's own heart. And out of his love for God, he intended to do something. He intended to do something, express his love in the building of that wonderful temple, one of the greatest temples ever built, known as Solomon's temple. But when he came and shared his heart with Jehovah, you remember what he was told? Thou hast shed blood abundantly. Thou hast made great wars. Thou shalt not build a house unto my name because thou hast shed much blood upon the earth in my sight. No, you're a man of blood. You're a man of murder. You're a man of sin, David. And although I accept the perfect heart you have toward me and your intention to build a house for me, you can't do it. So David was left with the privilege of preparing the materials while his son Solomon erected the temple. But I'm going to tell you, in the records of God, in the records of God, even though Solomon, his son, actually built the temple, even though the glory on earth went to Solomon for that temple, I want to tell you, in the records of heaven and in the heart of God, that temple was born in the heart of David. It was his intent. And God accepted that. A willingness to give. But with this intent of ability, there is also the extent of ability. Talking about integrity, we're talking about ability in the ethics of giving. And Paul says in verse 12, where there's a willingness to give, God accepts what a man hath and not what he hasn't got. That's the extent of ability. What is your attitude toward your stewardship responsibilities? What is your attitude? Is it one of recoiling? Is it one of revulsion? 
Are you prepared to listen to any type of message delivered from a desk like this, a sacred pulpit like this, and open your heart to it, but find yourself closing up and becoming embarrassed and perhaps provoked or irritated once the matter of giving is mentioned? That's a test of your spirituality, my friend. Someone has said that responsibility for Christians is our response to God's ability. Our response to God's ability. So really the extent of ability is not only the intent in our heart, but our faith in the ability of God. Not only to meet our needs, but to provide us with that with which to minister to God. You see, it's a circle. God gives to us. We give back to God. God gives to us. We give back to God. And the extent of our ability to give is the measure of our faith in God's ability to enable us to give. Someone has put it this way. There are five possible attitudes that Christians may adopt. We may shirk our responsibilities. Secondly, we may shelve them, hoping that at some time or other we may fulfill them. Thirdly, we may shoulder them and wear ourselves out by bearing their full weight. We may shed them after having made an attempt to fulfill them. But fifthly, we may share them. It is following the fifth course that we shall be best able to fulfill the law of Christ and bring glory to God. Because God never asks us to do it all. He shares with us. We trust his ability to make us able to do our responsibility. Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your soul. And then he added, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why? Because he always shares it with us. And I think it's one of the most wonderful concepts God has given me of late to realize that my responsibility in giving is something I share with God. He helps me to give. And the extent of my ability is the extent of my faith in God to help me to give. That's the extent of one's ability. In summing up this ethic of ability in giving, we do well to recall the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Here we see two aspects of intent and extent in giving solemnly illustrated. Peter made it very plain to these two people in the church at Jerusalem that while they owned their land, it was theirs. It was in their power or ability to give exactly what they wanted to. But no one was going to press them into doing it. And you remember they sold that land and they brought the gift, but they'd already agreed that they were going to give part of the gift in the name of the whole. So while their ability was wide open to give whatever the Lord might lay upon their hearts, their intent to give was one of duplicity, one of lying. For as they stood before Peter, first Ananias and then Sapphira, lied. They said, there it is, all of it, all of it. It wasn't, it was part of the price. And they failed both in the extent as well as the intent of ability in giving. Their giving was unethical. Their giving was immoral. And you know what happened? You know what happened? They lost their lives. They lost their lives. And I'm very solemnized as I look through my New Testament for illustrative measures which God employed for dealing with delinquent Christians. And although we know that at Corinth there were a number of people who lost their lives, who died because of mishandling the table of the Lord, 
and living lives that were not in accord with the word of God and the will of God and the glory of God. For this cause many amongst you are sickly and some sleep. The stark illustration of Ananias and Sapphira stands out of an ocean of truth just like a piece of rock jutting into the air. And Ananias and Sapphira lost their lives not because of murder, not because of immorality, but because of holding back in giving. Let us see to it that our stewardship is absolutely ethical, both in integrity and in ability. Finally, I want you to notice the third aspect of this truth in the verses that follow, what I'm calling the ethic of equality in giving. For I mean, says Paul, not that other men be eased and ye burdened, but by an equality. Your abundance may be a supply for their want, that their abundance also may be a supply for your want. As it is written, he that had gathered much had nothing over, and he that had gathered little had no lack. Integrity, ability, equality in giving. The Bible teaches that no believer has a right to enjoy this world's good while his brother is in need. This explains why the church functioned as it did in those early days after Pentecost. You'll remember that they all believed and they all had things in common and they all sold their possessions and they all parted to every man as each had need. Now, as we shall see in a moment, such teaching does not in any way support either the communist idea of giving or the worldly idea of giving. It doesn't encourage luxury on the one side nor laziness on the other. What is being taught is simply this. And this is a tremendous truth for us to grab hold of today. First of all, in prosperity we are to receive, or rather, in prosperity, in prosperity we are to relieve the needs of others. In prosperity we are to relieve the needs of others. By inequality, your abundance may be a supply for their want. John teaches exactly the same principle when he says in that third chapter of his first epistle, Whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? This ethic of equality, of course, applies not only to people in need, but to situations in need. In our day and generation, the great proportion of giving in our churches is directed to missionary societies and to missionaries who've gone out, to radio, to television, to evangelistic enterprises. And this is right and proper. Within our own fellowship here, there is a fellowship fund taken from month to month for those of our membership who are in need. And this is right. In prosperity, we are to relieve the needs of others. And where there is a need for the gospel to go forth, where there is a need for a piece of evangelism, where there is a need for the ongoing of the local church so that the stakes may be driven deeper so that the, the, the lengths of cords may be exceeded, I want to tell you that that's a need. And in our prosperity, we're to meet that need. While we're able to support ministries, we're committed to do so. This, I repeat, is the ethic of equality in giving. But notice... And with a touch of humor here, in verse 13, Paul warns that equality in giving should not cause the saints at Jerusalem to be eased, while those at Corinth are to be burdened. In other words, 
the Jerusalem saints were not to enjoy plush seats while the Corinthian Christians sat on hard benches. On the contrary, there should be wisdom and a sense of balance in this whole matter of sharing the resources of a local church. Paul says, now don't be foolish about it. And he does so with a tinge of humor and sarcasm. And there is no doubt about it, ironical stabs occur right through these two chapters. He says, now then, you're in prosperity and they are in need. But as you give, remember, remember equality. Do it in balance. Do it in good taste. For there'll come a day when you'll be in need. Then Paul takes pain to show the reverse side of the picture. Notice in verse 14. In prosperity, we are to relieve the needs of others, but in adversity, we are to receive the gift of others. Their abundance also may be a supply of your wants, that there may be an equality. Verse 14. Now, this is quite tremendous. Quite tremendous. Paul says, you're in prosperity at this moment, therefore meet their need. Do it in balance, however. But remember, the equality of giving and the ethics of giving, one day, one day, you may need their help. And I want to tell you, it takes as much grace to give as it does to receive. And as much grace to receive as it does to give. There are some people who will not accept gifts lest they should be obligated to the donor. This, in Paul's view, is unethical. We should receive all that God gives us through our brethren with a holy sense of gratefulness and indebtedness. Since the time may well come when we have to reciprocate the kindness shown to us. This truth was not only for the Corinthians, it is relevant for you and me. The fortunes of life change very quickly. Today we may be in abundance while tomorrow we may be in want. Today we may live in luxury while tomorrow we may be experiencing lack. Today we may have the privilege of giving while tomorrow we may have the equal privilege of receiving. So the ethic of equality is taught in the word of God. I need grace to give. I need grace to receive. Because there's such a thing as equality of giving. To illuminate this point, the apostle cites an incident in Israel's history, Exodus 16 and verse 18, and it's referred to right here. It's the case of an Israelite who went out to gather manna and says, Paul, you remember that the man overcome with greed, who took far more than he should have ever taken, discovered that that which was over and above his exact need turned into a foul mass of pollution. On the other hand, the individual who gathered less than what was his due had no lack. So God levels all people to the point of equal rights in his presence. If we fail to give in prosperity, God will curse what we hold back. In the same way, if we fail to receive in adversity, God will judge us for the pride that hinders us from recognizing his providing hand. So we have seen that the challenge is on ethics. And I don't suppose there's a subject which needs an undergirding with ethical procedure like the subject of giving. Most of our giving is emotional. Most of our giving is the impulse of a moment. And my prayer has always been throughout my ministry that God's people should so be instructed in the word of God that the theology of giving, the doctrine of giving, the teaching of giving might just soak our lives so that our giving may be on the basis of conviction, on the basis of theology, on the basis of a reasoned position in the presence of God. And that our giving should be ethical, moral, and proper. Why? Because we've been taught of the word of God. There's integrity in it. There's ability in it. There's equality in it. Because these three constitute the ethics of giving. The more we study this passage, 
the more it becomes evident that Paul covers the whole ground of morality in the matter of money. To lay these principles to heart is to please God and to live in blessing. To reject these principles is to break the heart of God and to fall into a temptation and a snare which leads to destruction and perdition. God expects integrity, ability, and equality in giving. When we fulfill what God lays down in this passage, I want to say something. You and I are not to imagine that we've done God a favor. Oh, no. We have done God no favor whatsoever. When we've done our best, when we've given our tithes and our offerings, when we fulfill the injunctions of Scripture, when we've maintained the integrity and ability and equality of giving, when we've done all, we're still unprofitable servants. But God is no man's debtor. And Hebrews 6.10 is the greatest comfort I can give you and give my own heart this morning. God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love which ye have showed toward his name in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. The story is told of a farmer who was known for his generous giving and whose friends could not understand how he could give so much and yet be so prosperous. One day a spokesman for his friend said, We cannot understand you, brother. You give more than any one of us. In fact, more than all of us put together. And somehow or other, the more you give, the more you have. Can you explain this? Oh, that's easy to explain, said the farmer. I keep shoveling into God's bin, and God keeps shoveling into my bin. But the difference is God has the bigger shovel. Isn't that wonderful? Here was a man whose ethics of giving were controlled by the power of an indwelling Lord. Tell me, who holds your purse? Is it self? Or is your testimony something like this? I'm feeling very rich today, for Jesus holds my purse. I need not count its scanty store, as all the assets at my door. Behind it stands a wealthy name, and vast resources I may claim, for Jesus holds my purse. My cashier never lets me want, since Jesus holds my purse. Debit and credit always meet. I marvel at his counsel's sweet. Concerning purchases I make, or money given for his dear sake, while he controls my purse, I'd face the world in great alarm if Judas held my purse. He'd call the gifts of humble love naught but a waste, treasure above uncertainty, quantity, and poor. My life would barren be, I'm sure, if Judas held my purse. And thus I live a carefree life, for Jesus holds my purse, since money is a sacred thing, both joy and sorrow it may bring. According as we do his will, our hearts will find a quietness so still. Let Jesus hold your purse. Let us pray. Precious Lord, how we thank thee that thou hast not left us in darkness concerning our responsibilities in every area of faith and practice. Thy precious word has been given us to guide us throughout this pilgrim journey and on all matters that concern thy will and thy glory and our good. There is light in thy precious word. We thank thee for teaching us this morning something of the ethics of giving. Oh God, give me, give my beloved congregation here this morning integrity, ability, and equality in the ethics of giving. And so make us a happy people a hilarious people. We ask it for thy dear name's sake. Amen.
This is David Olford. You have been listening to a message from God's Word delivered by my late father, Dr. Stephen F. Olford, who went to be with the Lord in the year 2004. If you wish to learn about our online resources or learning events at the Institute for Biblical Preaching, our web address is olford.org. That's O-L-F-O-R-D dot org. You also may want to benefit from our online video training on expository preaching, which can also be found on our website. Thank you so much for listening.